come up with me to the Gospel according to Luke. Find Matthew, Mark, and Luke in your New Testament there. Our focus is on seven verses this morning of Luke chapter 13. It's verses 10 through 17. Uh, We're continuing on this journey through this wonderful gospel that comes to us through Luke by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and really following along with Jesus as he makes his way to Jerusalem to be delivered up and crucified on the cross. I think it's important that we remind ourselves that since chapter 9 and verse 51 that Jesus has been determined to do that very thing, to do Uh, to go to Jerusalem and to do what God's hand and God's purpose had predestined to do, as Acts 4.28 tells us. And that is for Jesus Christ to be delivered up and crucified at the hands of wicked men. And we will be reminded of that fact later on in verse 22 of chapter 13 once more as well. But as he works his way there and he's getting closer and closer, we've noticed that his message of repentance is increasing in its frequency and its urgency and its intensity. And as he does so, we're going to notice that there's also going to be this uh, increase in the hostility back against him that will come from the ruling religious party, the Pharisees. They're going to call him a liar. They're going to be indignant that he associates with tax collectors and sinners. They're going to accuse him of being demon-possessed. They're going to call him a blasphemer and and accuse him of breaking the rabbinic traditions that they have kept. They'll continue to challenge his authority. And then they will ultimately plot to kill him, falsely arrest him, put him through a mock trial, and persuade the Romans to execute him on the cross by crucifixion. But it's not as if our Lord does not know this or expect that these things are going to occur. He's still going to proceed to Jerusalem. We need to keep that in mind that he is going to voluntarily and volitionally offer himself up to die on that cross. No man is going to take his life. He is going to give himself up for us. He's not going to die as a victim. He's going to die as a victor. It's a a rescue mission that has been conceived in the mind of God from eternity past and decreed by the will of God that Jesus Christ, who was the Son of God and the Son of Man, would be sent forth from the Father, that he would be born of a virgin, born under the law, and that he would take on the form of a bondservant. He would live a sinless life, perfectly keeping all the righteous requirements of the law, committing no sin, nor would there be any deceit that would be found in his mouth. And that he would humble himself and be obedient to the will and the commandment of the Father, laying down his life for his sheep, perfectly atoning for our sins and by the shedding of his blood on the cross, and thus satisfying the perfect righteous demands of God, appeasing the wrath of God as a perfect, spotless, sinless sacrifice. And he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And then after three days, he would rise again, conquering death, canceling out the certificate of debt of the decrees that were against us. He would disarm the rulers and the authorities, and he would rise as a victorious, living Savior. He would then ascend up into heaven. He would be seated at the right hand of the Father, living as our high priest so that he might make intercession for us and that he might sympathize with us in our weakness and advocate for us before the Heavenly Father. 
So that whoever now calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And whoever comes to the Lord will he by no means cast out. So that there would be no salvation found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we might be saved. This is why Jesus has to go to Jerusalem. This is why he will voluntarily endure hostility and outright hatred of himself because he has a divine appointment with the cross. The path to glory is a road of suffering for our Savior. And as he's been heading there and making his way across Israel, we find him teaching and correcting and even rebuking those who would hold on to a false religion and a man-made system of works righteousness. He's repeatedly drawing the distinct line between the two great religions of the world, not Christianity and Judaism. We're talking the religion of divine accomplishment versus the religion of human achievement. And we find that ever so clear in the text that we have before us today. So let's take a look at our text a little bit more closely this morning. I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. Starting in verse 10 of Luke chapter 13, God's holy word says this. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for eighteen long years, Should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said this, all of his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, I just pray now that your words might come through a mere man to encourage us into conformity with Christ, that we might take what we hear today, Lord, and not just acquire them as knowledge, but that we might apply them in practice. Help us to learn from your word, Father. Help us to know the truths that lie here and walk in their ways. We thank you that you are a gracious, merciful God, and we thank you for your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we read this account, we may feel like it's sort of this isolated event that's sort of uh, disconnected, in a way, from that previous chapter. And if we were to read on in chapter 13, 
We might even think that the two parables that begin in verse 18 and verse 20 are just these couple of isolated parables that Luke wanted, to, uh, wanted us and his most excellent Theophilus to know and understand about Jesus Christ. And for us, these chapter breaks that we have and these headings that appear before each of these little sections sort of makes it appear that way to us. Just a a couple of isolated parables, an isolated story about some other things that Jesus did that Luke just kind of threw in there. But although we have this change in scene beginning in verse 10 in chapter 13, we really don't have a change in the theme. There's a, a unified chord that weaves its way through the Gospel of Luke, and that is that Jesus is is indeed the Christ, and that salvation can only be found in Him. In fact, it's really a chord that runs through the entire Bible for that matter. But as we read this little vignette, and we compare it to what we've studied in chapter 12, we can see some definite connections into what Jesus had just taught. Would these people... Would they think that their master is going to delay and and start to beat down both men and women and weigh them down with heavy burdens as he taught in verses 45 and 46 of Luke chapter 12? Would this massive crowd that included the Pharisees be able to really analyze the present time with Christ's teaching and his miracles being displayed before their eyes? Much like they would be able to discern the weather that was approaching as he taught in verses 54 and 56. Would they actually repent before it's too late, like he taught in verses 1 through 5 at the beginning of chapter 13? Would the fig tree, would it bear fruit if given the opportunity for one more year, like he just taught in the parable in verses 6 through 9? And in the case of the Pharisees and the synagogue official that we just read about, the answer to that, sadly, is no. They could not see that all their, their ceremonies and all their works and all their religious activities and all their supposed moral behavior was not going to please God in any way. They thought that they were spiritually rich, but Jesus told them they're spiritually bankrupt. They thought they had spiritual sight, but Jesus told them, you are spiritually blind. They thought that they had God as their father, but Jesus tells them, you know what, your father is actually the devil. In their minds, they thought if they did all these things that they did for God, they were righteous and justified and holy. But in all honesty, they were lacking two very fundamental and very important things. And it is some things that we need to examine within our own hearts, within ourselves and our religious duties that we do. And that is, does it have a genuine love for God and does it have a genuine love for people? It's the very thing that Isaiah condemned Israel for in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, when he said, Because these people, they draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Nothing that they did was motivated for a genuine love for God. And it was all empty ritualism and formalism, and it was a vain attempt at a man-made religion, much like we talked about with Martin Luther a couple weeks ago. So let's look at our text a little bit more closely this morning. I want us to work through this text under three different headings, and uh, that is the character of the woman, the compassion of Christ, and the callousness of the legalist. And I'm going to give you a little, uh, a little warning ahead of time. We're not going to make it all the way. We're going to come back to this again. But first of all, 
we got to set the stage. And that's in verse 10. It says in verse 10, and he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Now, by way of reminder, I think it's kind of important that we know what a synagogue is a bit. Because if you've read through the Bible and you're reading through the Old Testament and then you come into the New Testament, all of a sudden you got these things called synagogues popping up, right? A synagogue translates literally into a word that means a meeting place. It wasn't the temple. The temple was uh, only in Jerusalem, and that was the place where the sacrifices occurred. And you would celebrate the Passover and all those sort of uh, national ceremonies that occurred. And the Sadducees were the ones that ran the temple uh, because it was such a, a lucrative financial and political position. Solomon's temple, it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And so shortly after that, and during the ba- Babylonian uh, captivity these synagogues start popping up in order to have places to teach the people. So during that intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that 400 years, all of a sudden you've got these synagogues coming into the landscape in order for the people to be taught the Word of God. Their place of worship was destroyed. And they were deported into Babylonian captivity. And as they slowly came back into the land and they started to rebuild the nation of Israel, these synagogues that they enjoyed in Babylon sprouted up in Israel and sort of filled the gap, if you will, until the temple was rebuilt. And as they constructed these synagogues, all of these entryways sort of faced towards the temple in Jerusalem. It was like a, a symbolic nod that the temple had greater importance and greater uh, vitality in their worship in Judaism. And sometimes there was multiple synagogues within a city. During the time of Jesus, it's estimated that there were some 500 synagogues during the time of our Lord. It's sort of like within Marysville. There's three Southern Baptist churches. Not quite the synagogue numbers in, in, uh, in Jerusalem, but it's the same type of concept. And, and so where, here is where we find Jesus teaching on the Sabbath day. Just like he did after the temptation of Satan in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4, we find him, he went back to his hometown where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, it says in verse 16 of Luke chapter 4, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And later, later on in verse 43 of 44 of Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus say, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. But that's even what he's been doing all through chapter 12, is is preaching the kingdom of God. Or in other words, the rule and reign of God that should be in our lives. He said, beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and their false religion. He said, fear God instead of fearing men. He said, confess the Son. He said, don't live for this life by storing up earthly treasures for yourself and build bigger barns, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He said, don't worry about your life because you have a loving heavenly Father who knows your needs and He has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Live your life as if you are ready for the return of your Master. Oh, and by the way... You better repent, and you better do it fast, because two things. You don't know when I'm coming, and you do not know when you're going to die. This was his message 
This was what he taught and he preached. And what better place to get that message out than in the synagogue where people would come in to hear the Word of God. The living Word of God, teaching the Word of God, was taught in the synagogue. So now that we have our setting, I want us to first notice of all the character of this woman, starting in verse 11. The character of this woman. Verse 11 says, And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. And so here we have this woman. And i got to confess to you that I had a hard time getting very far in this text because of this remarkable woman. Here we have a woman who is literally bent over double. In other words, her spine is contorted in such a way that she is constantly looking downward with her head. That's what that Greek word means, bent over double. It means to bend completely forward or to be bowed together. Some theologians have tried to speculate that this was some sort of a a spiritually doubling over here, and, and some have tried to give her some sort of medical diagnosis But I think those things are kind of futile to speculate about because if it was only a spiritual bending over, as some have suggested, it doesn't really make sense how she would have garnered the attention of that uh, synagogue official. And so I think it's best for us to just stick with the plain meaning in the text. And that is when she walks, she sees nothing but the ground. There's There's an elderly gentleman I've seen in our community. He's got this very same problem, and it's, it's pitiful to watch, but as he, he walks out to his mailbox, his back is bent over double. He can't see where he's going. He can only look down at the ground, and he has to look sideways at the mailbox to reach in and pull out his mail. He's probably 80, 90 years old, but he's bent over, and this lady, she's in the same way. She can't look up. She can only see her feet. She can't look into the mirror and do her hair. She can't, uh, she would have difficulty getting herself dressed. She probably smelled a little bit because she couldn't bathe properly as she should and completely. She probably had a hard time getting around and seeing where she needed to go. Constant backaches, trips and falls, stumbling over objects that she couldn't see ahead of her. And all of this done for 18 years. But not only that, remember what we talked about with the Jews and their theology about death in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 13. They thought in their minds that bad things happen to bad people. And certainly in this case, they would have thought that either this woman or her parents had to do something wrong in order for her to be bent over like this. Just like the blind man in John chapter 9, when the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, they said, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he would be born blind. And Jesus answered, he said, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed through him. In their minds, they, they thought that something, she must have done something wrong to garner God's displeasure about receiving this lot in life. If she's in this condition, God surely is punishing her for something. And she would have been an outcast. 
She would have been a subpar human in their eyes. We can sort of imagine as she walks into the synagogue, the sneers and the the sideways looks that she would have got as she hobbled away into the synagogue. And not only that, but being a woman, she would have been required to sit in the back of the synagogue, out of the sight of everyone else, let alone be, be in there walking around disfigured as she was. But unbeknownst to her, for 18 years, this was caused by an evil spirit. Just as Job had no clue about the spiritual activity that was going on between God and Satan with all of his ordeals, so too this woman, she had borne this affliction for 18 years with no clues, no clue that the source or the origin of it was demonic. But beloved, how much do we need to learn of this woman? How much do we need to take in of her ways? Think about it. She could have very well reasoned within her mind and said, you know what, I'm in excruciating pain. I got this back thing going on. I can't see where I'm going half the time. Surely I should be excused from going to the synagogue to hear the word of God. Or she might have thought in her mind, no one is going to want to see me in the synagogue and I just might as well stay home. But she didn't. 18 long years of pain and suffering, 18 years of sleepless nights, 18 years of tears and sobbing, 18 years of begging and pleading with God. And yet she made her way to the synagogue to hear the word of God and to worship. Here she is in this horrible physical condition, this terrible social condition. And yet it's as if she had Psalm 42 in her heart which says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears, for 18 long years, my tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Or maybe she had Psalm 84, verses 1 and 2 that said, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of my Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy of the living God. You can almost get the sense that this woman isn't here for some sort of social connection, but she's coming to hear the word of God. She didn't have a Bible at home. There was, it wasn't available to her. But she's coming to hear his voice. She's coming so that she can have greater and greater communion with the living God. It's almost as if she's saying, if I don't have anything else, I must have God. Everything else in this world is fleeting. Everything else in this world is temporal. Everything else I set my affection in this world, it will be gone tomorrow. But I have God and I have all I will ever need for eternity. I don't care if I have my health. I don't care if I have riches. I don't care if I have companionship. If I don't have anything else in this world, I must have God. Child of God, is this your heart's cry this morning? Do you long to see God's greatness exalted and hear his word proclaimed and to be with God's people? Do you yearn within the depths of your soul to know him? Do you ache within your heart? Is it a pale comparison to any physical aches that you have? 
Do you desire Him above, over and above everything in your life? Would your soul be torn apart and torn into pieces? Would you be able to bear the thoughts of not having Jesus Christ in your life? Do you have such an appetite for the Word of God to be able to hear His voice through it that you are willing to endure hardship and affliction and expend any cost so that no matter what comes your way, you must have more of God? Or have you grown complacent in your zeal to know more and more about Him? Have we grieved the Holy Spirit by our negligence and our lack of desire for greater, greater manifestations of His work in our lives? I would say that even the best of us in this room, myself included, if we would stand up here today and expose our hearts, we would all find that we fall short in this area. Oh, but God would break down and pull down the myriad of trivialities in this world that block our sight of Him. Would you begin to pray and beg of God to give you a greater and greater time of communion with Him? Would you ask God, would you plead with Him to give you a holy appetite for His Word? We need to look upon this woman. We need to look upon her ways. Because this is a woman of remarkable character. Next, I want you to see the compassion of Christ. The compassion of Christ in verses 12 through 13. And we will not be able to exhaust exhaust this today. Verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again, and she began glorifying God. Now notice, I want you to see, first of all, in verse 12, it says that Jesus saw her. And as this woman made her way into this synagogue, she's doubled over so that she's barely noticeable to the crowd because she couldn't stand tall enough. And as she slid into her normal obscure spot within the synagogue, If no one else in the room was ever going to give her the time of day, surely the compassionate heart of our Lord and Savior was going to do so. If she was never going to receive mercy from the ruler of this synagogue, surely the Lord of life was going to give her that mercy. And so Jesus calls her over. And we can only imagine the shock that she must have felt when someone called out to her and reached out to her. She probably felt a little embarrassed and her heart started to pound. She probably started to shake and tremble a bit. She was probably afraid of all those Pharisees around and their sneers because of the stigma, the stigma of being a crippled woman. And yet Jesus Christ calls to her and says, come here. And as she makes her way through the crowd and she comes to the front of the synagogue, probably walking with a cane so that she can keep her balance, Jesus touches her and tells her that she is freed from her sickness. An instant, complete, lasting healing after these 18 long years. Suddenly, she can stand upright. Everyone can now look and see her face. She didn't need physical therapy after this. She didn't need her joints exercised and her muscles built back up because God did all of that for her. No one else would touch her. 
No one else would give her the time of day. No one would ever reach out to her. And yet our compassionate Lord and Savior calls out to her and touches her and releases her from this demonic illness that has plagued her for 18 years. And do you know that this is like a picture of your salvation in Christ Jesus? There is an imagery here that we can't avoid of the sovereign grace of God in our salvation. You and I, we had an illness, a sickness that kept us bent over double from seeing Christ. You and I weren't looking for Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were alienated and hostile to God. We were cut off from the promises. And yet God reached out to us and called us forth through His gospel. And we can only love Him now because He first loved us, as 1 John 4.19 tells us. He called out to us and He healed us of our sickness of sin. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But by His doing... You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. It is His healing hand that has brought us forth to be children of the day. It is all of the sovereign grace of God that you and I are in Christ Jesus. It's been said, the two greatest words in the Bible is this, but God, but God. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in His mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing richness of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. A pastor named Al Baker wrote this article in the Banner of Truth regarding this one verse, and he said this, quote, My dear friends, you were like the Ephesians, but God. There have been times since your conversion where things look terribly bleak, But God, you were afraid, bewildered at the troubling diagnosis of a doctor. But God, you lost your job when your company was purchased by another. But God, you lost a child to an illness. But God, you lost a parent or a spouse. But God, your heart breaks because you have children who have turned away from the Lord. But God, in one of these days... Your end will come, and you will close your eyes one last time in death. But God, when you pass through the waters, the Lord will be with you through the deep waters, and they will not overflow you. When you pass through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, is your Savior. He will never leave you or forsake you. You have denied Him, but He will never deny you. 
In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. Jesus has overcome the world. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful, but God. Nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Do you believe that today? Ladies and gentlemen, 18 long years this woman suffered. We don't know if she came to full faith in Jesus Christ, but we like to think that she did. But 18 long, painful years this woman endured. But God, but God, rich in mercy, but God is full of compassion, but God is abundant in loving kindness, but God is tender in his mercies, but God is the fountain of life, but God healed this woman completely, fully, and permanently. Beloved, I don't know what you're going through right now. Some of you may feel like this woman on the inside of your hearts. You constantly feel anxious. You feel like you have no real joy. Your thoughts seem to continue downward into despair. You're worried about how your kids are going to turn out. And maybe you're young and you don't know where your life is going to be like and you don't know where you should go. Everything seems hopeless. The only thing you will ever have to hold on to in this life is Jesus Christ. The only thing that you can do is draw near to God because His promise to you is that He will draw near to you. When you are fearful, when you're anxious, when you're paralyzed with despair, never forget ever forget that you serve a compassionate, merciful Savior who loved you with an everlasting love, who a love that was so great that nothing will be able to ever, ever separate you from it. Christ will be your refuge. It's Christ that will be your strength. It's Christ that will be your fortress and your strong tower. He will come to your aid if you only trust Him with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways. Acknowledge Him. Horatius Bonaris, a Scottish preacher, he wrote a poem which I think is fitting. He said, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling fresh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine, no other blood will do. No strength that which is divine can bear me safely through. If you're going through tough times, if you don't know where you're going and it just feels like you're on this waves of ocean and you're being tossed around and back and forth, grab on to the lifeboat of Christ. Cling to Him. Hold on to Him with all of your strength and all of your might. I want to, I've got more to say to you about the compassionate Savior that we serve and the response from this woman, but we're going to have to pick it up next week. Let's pray.
Oh, gracious Lord, we owe you an infinite amount of gratitude and thankfulness from our heart. You bestowed upon us so many divine mercies. You've given us so many graces. You are so faithful even when we are not. Father, if there is anyone here today does not know of this mercy with which I talk, please let them fly to You and cling to You and grab hold of You and run to You, God. Let today be the day of salvation in their life. But if there's someone here, Lord, that's struggling, their heart's in despair, They're anxious. Father, we just pray that they might look up and see Christ. That they would depend upon Him for all of His graces and all of His mercies. That He might depend upon the Helper, which You promised to give to us, to those who are in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Help them to draw near to You, Father. We pray all these things. In the precious name of your Son, amen.